Matthew chapter 16, and let's begin in verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now turn over, hold your thumb there, because we'll mainly be in Matthew, uh, but turn over to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and let's begin in verse 19. Then, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We're so grateful, Lord, that it's all that it is in our lives. We're grateful that it doesn't change. We're thankful that it accomplishes every purpose it's sent to accomplish in our lives. We're thankful that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. We're thankful, Lord, that it will outlive the heavens and the earth. So many things about your word, Lord, that we are thankful for. But, Lord, now as we sit before you and we want to learn your word, be taught by you by your spirit, we ask that you would teach us and make application as you see fit for each one of our lives. We don't want to be changed in a way that's apart from you, Lord, in a, in a carnal way. We want to be changed, Lord, because of you in a spiritual way. We want to walk away from here changed. So we pray that you'd help us, Lord, to learn all the things you want us to learn and help us to make application of these verses, Lord, as only you can. We commit this to you. We pray that you'd set this time aside for your holy use. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And again, we'll be in Matthew for the rest of our time, Matthew 16. This morning, I want to speak about the kingdom of God. It's a subject that we don't hear a lot about. Some of us uh, have maybe never have studied the kingdom of God, and we sure won't exhaust everything there is to know from the scriptures regarding the kingdom of God. But the Lord has drawn my heart to this, at least for this week, uh, to, to, for us to look at these things. And we need to know what the kingdom of God is and what part we play related to God's intent for the kingdom of God in this world. And I believe that's important. Because I believe that God's expectation for each one of us, those of us that know him in this room, his expectations for each one of us is different related to the kingdom of God. He has a different plan for each one of us regarding our place in the kingdom of God, how we're supposed to be good influences within the kingdom of God. And so he wants us to walk in the reality of that kingdom. He wants us to know what it is, how we should function in it. And we, we want to do so so that we are fulfilling his great plan that he has for us. So that begs the question, what is the kingdom of God? Or and sometimes it's referred to, especially in Matthew, almost exclusively in Matthew, it's referred to as the kingdom of heaven. Now, some people in the past have wanted to parse out those two things, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of God means one thing, and the kingdom of heaven means something entirely different. I think that's straining it in ways that we shouldn't strain. I mean, they're interchangeable in many ways. Sometimes they're, it's listed in one way in one gospel, and then it's speaking of the very same teaching or occurrence that's happened in another gospel, and, and it's interchangeable with the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of of God. And so we want to look and see what that means. 
Matthew mostly uses kingdom of heaven, and, and John only uses kingdom of God twice. The rest of the time, it's the, the kingdom of God in Mark and Luke. And so the question is, what in the world is the kingdom of God? Well, it's a little hard to define. <laughs> I found that out as I started going a little bit deeper, deeper than I ever have been. And, and it's a little bit hard to define because it's related to God and his kingdom. And obviously something that is transcendent to our time in our, our kind of realm, uh, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around sometimes. But uh, he's given us a lot related to the kingdom of God. So maybe we won't understand everything about it, but we'll have a good grasp on it uh, as we look at the, the scriptures. So it, it's, it's a location, the kingdom of God, but it's not just a location. It's, it's a realm. It's, it's an influence. It's God at work. It's God at work in heaven, but it's also God at work on earth. It presupposes that there's a king. You know, you can't have a kingdom, at least that not one that's worth very much, without a king overseeing things. And so it's God overseeing things, and it's, re- it's him revealing himself, doing what only he can do. It's him working in heaven, and it's him working on earth. And it, the kingdom of God is, is, is very much now, but it's also the future. And he has some scriptures that he's revealed that are very specific regarding that it's something that we will experience in the future. And the first one that I want to list for you is Mark chapter 14, verse 25, which says, Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, the Lord Jesus was referring to a future time when he would be with his disciples in the kingdom at the marriage supper of the Lamb, probably, where he's being able to enjoy this once again with them. But it was speaking of something that was going to occur yet in the future. One time during his earthly ministry, he spoke to some unbelieving Jews and said this in Luke chapter 13, verse 28. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. So he's talking about those unbelieving Jews. He's, he's irritated at that moment because the ruler of the, the synagogue has just uh, criticized him for healing someone on the Sabbath. And he's dealing with unbelief, these unbelieving Pharisees, these critics of his and so forth. And he's saying, you take so much pride in your identity as children of Abraham in the sense of uh, being in their direct lineage. But you don't have the faith of Abraham. You're not a child of God because you don't have the faith of Abraham like Abraham had. And thus, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit, says, If you're engaged in these certain behaviors, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Plain and simple. Future it's, it's the, the heavenly kingdom that we're, that's our portion, those of us that, that know the Lord. So it is something, the kingdom of God is, that is yet in our future for those that, that know God. But the kingdom of God is more than that. It's also something that we can experience in the present. And that's what I really want to focus on this morning, is the kingdom of God that we get to experience in the present, in the here and now. Now, Matthew chapter 16, it's a very interesting situation here because the Lord Jesus has them in a place that's very strategic. He's in uh, Caesarea Philippi, and he brought his disciples to that region. That region was 25 miles north of Galilee, which was considered in the, in the northern part of, of Israel even then. So it's 25 miles north of the location that was commonly thought of as kind of the northern part of, of Israel. And so he has them there, and it's, it's, this city was mainly a place where Gentiles lived. There were Jews, but it was mainly a place where the Gentiles lived, and the Romans had set up a, a, a kind of a fortress there, and they named it after leaders that they venerated and so forth, and this place was completely given over to idolatry. They worshipped the Greek god Pan, P-A-N, there. And so they loved this God. They served this other false gods named Baal that you've heard of, I'm sure. And it was, it was a, a very ungodly place. It wasn't a place that, it, that Jews would go on vacation with their family. Hey, let's go to Caesarea Philippi and hang out among all those idols and all those people that are engaged in sinful behavior as an expression of worship to these false gods. They wouldn't do that. 
So Jesus brought these disciples to this area for a very specific reason. And the significance of it I'll I'll get to in a moment. But he's there in this city, Caesarea Philippi, to to, to give an object lesson. Because he's going to use the backdrop of their location as a means by which he can say something about the kingdom of God. And that's why I want us to focus on these verses uh, this morning. In verse 13 he says, when Jesus, it says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So he says to them, Who do, who do people say that I am? What's, what are they saying about me? What's the word on the street, so to speak, you know? And they give these answers, and they're, they're answering honestly. They're saying, some of you think that you're John the Baptist and, and Elijah and these different people. I always thought John the Baptist was, wow, that's, denominations go a long ways back. <laughs> they were Baptists back then. Look at that. John was the, was the first Baptist, and I had to learn that he was the baptizer, you know, and he baptized people in, in the wilderness. Not everybody is dense as I am, so most people didn't think that. I thought that when I first read it, um, but... They were having all these different opinions regarding uh, who Jesus was. And then notice Jesus asked them the, the same question in verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Peter rightly answered the question. Jesus wasn't a mere prophet, although he was that. Moses promised by the Spirit that there would come a prophet like like him that would come. In Deuteronomy, it was promised there would be a prophet that would come. And Jesus was the fulfillment of that. But he wasn't on equal par with any man who had ever lived. And, And he wants us to know that. And so Jesus was someone that different than how anyone else has ever been. No one has ever met the qualifications of Jesus regarding him being the Christ, the Son of God. If you're newer to the Bible, you may not know that Christ means anointed one. It's the, the kind of like the, another way of saying the Messiah. So Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, Nathaniel had already come to this conclusion. It wasn't that Peter was the first one who came up with this regarding the disciples. But Peter had this revelation from God. Ultimately, Jesus said that it came from the Father. It wasn't anything that man came up with or discovered on, on, on his own. This is something that God reveals. And God does reveal that. Some of us can testify the first time where we really sensed that Jesus is different. He's different than just any other teacher because he says that he's who he's, he says he's God in human flesh. And if if he's not God in human flesh, he can't be a good teacher because good teachers don't claim to be God when they're wrong. That's what C.S. Lewis made possible, made famous. The Lord liar lunatic uh, trilemma, you know, because if you're, if you're wrong about being God, you're either crazy or you're a deceiver. And so good teachers don't claim to be God who are not. So he didn't leave that option open for us to come to the conclusion that Jesus is anything other than what he claimed to be, and that is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So this, re- this revelation was directly given to Peter, and so he says that you're blessed because of that. Peter was blessed. Revelation from God is a privilege, and especially the revelation that Jesus is who he said he was. But any time we, ha- we receive revelation from God, when he speaks to us in his word or he gives unique application to, to his word in our hearts or he says something directly through one of the gifts of the Spirit or something like that, those things are considered a privilege and we need to recognize that we're blessed because of it. So that's a good thing to keep in mind as an aside. Now Jesus gives kind of this play on words in verse 18. Notice he says, And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now here's the play on words. Because in the original language, the word Peter is the word petros. It means a small stone. Now as a kid, I used to love small stones. 
And I used to throw those stones at things. And some of it was not very noble. Uh, But, you know, you go to the river and you have a small stone and it's smooth and you try to skip it and see how many times you could skip it on the water. It could be very dangerous if someone gets hit by one of those small stones. But Peter's designation by God was that he, his, he was a small stone. But then he says there that on this rock I will build my church. And in the Greek, that's the word Petra. Some of us remember that Christian rock band back in the 80s and 90s called Petra. And you can go to Petra today in Jordan and you can see the, the rock carved out there in a beautiful uh, you know, design there that's, that's breathtaking from what I understand. But what Jesus is saying, he's not, he's not saying that, that Peter is this, this boulder, because that's what the word Petra means. It means like a boulder, that, that God isn't going to build the church on Peter. That's where we've, we've kind of got off, gotten off track here. Because he's not saying he's going to build the, the church on any man. Peter would later say in his, one of his epistles that there's no other foundation that's been laid except Christ Jesus. He is the foundation. He's the chief cornerstone even. So he's saying... Look, this is the testimony of who I am, that that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon that confession, upon that boulder, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because later he's going to tell Peter that, get behind me, Satan. I mean, that's a rough start for any pope, I think. (laughs) Uh, You know, I mean, he wasn't so great. You know, he he wasn't this amazing person that, you know, he's— the Lord said, okay, I'm going to build my church upon this man. That's, that's not what he was saying. He's going to build his church upon the confession, upon the reality that he is the Messiah. He's the son of the living God. Then he says something interesting in verse 19. He says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Verse 19 is what I really want to focus on. This morning, related. Come on, we're talking about the kingdom of God here, and Jesus is telling them something about the kingdom of God, and and we look at these verses, and, and also in chapter eighteen, where it talks about if you go, so a brother sins against you, and you go to him and you confront him, he doesn't listen. You bring two or three witnesses, he doesn't listen, and you bring him before the church, and 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 you know you exercise this church discipline that happens. And, and then right after that, he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He repeats it there in chapter 18. And I used to think that that's talking about spiritual warfare. We're binding things in the spirit realm. I'm binding Satan. I'm binding this. I'm binding that. One day it dawned on me, I need a biblical basis for what I was doing. <laughs> and uh, so I'm like, okay, where does this say this in scripture? And I, it dawned on me that if all Christians in all time zones, 24 hours a day, are binding Satan, he wouldn't have any opportunity to do anything. But yet he does do many things to harm God's people. He's still killing, he's still stealing, he's still destroying, and so forth. So that can't be what it means. Binding and loosing means something entirely different than spiritual warfare. And the first question we need to ask and consider is, what's a key? Because he says there in verse 19, if you notice, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys are something that give you authority over something else. It's an instrument that expresses authority. I remember when you're, you know, you're kind of in a teenager and you want the keys to the car. You know, you feel like, I'm worthy to be trusted with these wheels, you know. This Pinto, I can take care of this Pinto. I can take care of this Gremlin or whatever car you had back in the day. Remember Gremlins? I was the fastest car in my high school was a Gremlin. I had like a 508 or some massive huge you know, jet engine in it that was not made to hold uh, that kind of engine. But you think, I, I'm trustworthy with these keys, Mom. I'm trustworthy with, with, with the keys, Dad. And so they say, well, I don't know if you're trustworthy. And then you try to earn their respect and that you're responsible. And then one day they give you those keys. And when they give you those keys, you have authority over that car. You have control over that car. You can start it when you want to. You can lock the keys in the car when you want to. (laughs) You can uh, lock the keys in the trunk. You can lose your keys. But you have control over that vehicle. It's it's also true in in, in kind of technology today. A lot of times you'll have a uh, uh, product code key or something. When you get some software and you've got to enter that 45 digit number with x's and l's and all that and it dashes and and you enter that product key in there and now you have authority over the software 
Now you can register it, you can use it, you can have full usage of it. So what he's saying here is that I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He's First of all, he's speaking first of all to Peter. We can't get around that. I mean, he is speaking to Peter here. The word you in verse 19 is singular. I will give you. There's a Greek word that describes you in the plural. The, the southerners call it, say y'all, you all. And it's plural you. And in the Greek, it makes it very clear. But here he's saying you, but he's saying it to Peter. But he's not just saying it to Peter. He's saying it to all of them in the sense because they're all in leadership. He's later going to say two chapters later that to all of them, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and so forth. He's saying that to all of them. But it's because Peter's the one that spoke up with that confession that he's saying it to him. But it's true for all of them. But what the key communicates is authority. You have authority in the kingdom of heaven. You have authority among God's people and in the context of the kingdom of God to be used by God how I want you to be used. And so we need to understand that that word authority is very important to what Jesus is aiming at in these verses. God entrusts us with authority to help people. He doesn't give us authority to make our heads big, to, to feel like we're important, to have pride. He gives us authority as believers in any context for other people. And that's why he gives it. So we have to understand the purpose of it. Authority can be harmful to people. We see that all the time. Some of us have seen it in religious environments. Authority can be hurtful. But it can also be very, very fruitful for the Lord. And so he knows that. So he's given us this authority. And he says we need to take advantage of that authority. When I preach the gospel to someone as a Christian, and sometimes I'll share my faith somewhere, and I'll, I'll sit, it'll be a divine appointment. It'll be obvious to me that God's setting this up. And I'll sit down. The person has no idea that the kingdom of God is visiting them at that moment. That God's, they're having a visitation from the kingdom of God because I have the spirit of God inside of me. I'm taking the kingdom of God with me wherever I go because I'm a Christian. And I'm hearing his voice and hopefully I'm responding to his leading by the Holy Spirit I'm, I'm acting on the prompting that the Spirit's giving me to say something to them. I'm loving them. I'm giving them the gospel. And sometimes they, they recognize it. They, they wouldn't articulate it that way. They wouldn't explain it like I'm explaining it. But they know that there's something different about me. They're attracted to the Lord inside of my life. They know that I'm not just in their life by accident. They know it. I don't even have to say it. Sometimes I do say it. But so often I don't say it. And they know there's something going on. That God is intervening in their life. The ones that are blind to it miss their opportunity. And if they go through their whole entire lives missing those opportunities, they're going to get to the end of their life, and it's very possible that God could show them all the opportunities on that day when they're at the great white throne judgment, where they had opportunity after opportunity, where he was trying to reach them, he was trying to invade their life, he was pursuing them, he was seeking them, he was trying to save them, and they kept pushing him away, pushing him away, pushing him away. So we have to recognize that we are in the middle of a kingdom when we're being led by the Spirit. When God's activating our, our obedience and he says, okay, I want you to work in this situation. I want you to say that certain thing to that person. I want you to speak up here. I want you to love that person. I want you to ask questions about their life. I want you to pray for them. I want you to, to, to hug them or I want you to engage them in some way. That's the kingdom of God visiting that person, whether they're an unbeliever or not. They could be a believer. We're experiencing the kingdom of God in our midst. Jesus said, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. And so whether they're unbelievers or they're believers, we are doing what we're doing for the kingdom's sake. And we're representing him as ambassadors for him. And that's why he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And that that was not an uncommon terminology for them at that time. That was very common in the Old Testament. For those in the Old Testament, those leaders, to bind a person to the law and to loose a person related to the law. And what they were saying is this, the law forbids your behavior. They're holding people to a biblical standard related to the Old Testament law back then. And they're saying, your behavior falls short of that. And so the law forbids your behavior, and thus you're bound to the law here. You have to obey the law because your behavior doesn't line up with it. But they'd also loose people according to the law. They would say, your behavior is permitted. I'll allow you to do it because there's nothing in the law that forbids it. So I'm going to loose you in that sense. And what that person would do when they would 
communicate that to God's people related to the law, they were saying that God is behind and the law is behind my decision-making because my decision-making is commensurate with what his word reveals. And that's what, that's what it meant in the Old Testament. And that's what it means for us because, again, we're walking in God's authority that he's delegated to us. So since we are commissioned and called to be his ambassadors, and since we base what we say regarding people's salvation on God's word, all of heaven backs up what we say. All of heaven says amen when we say you have to be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you aren't born again, you're not going to heaven. All of heaven is behind that statement when we say that. All of heaven is behind it. And people say, who are you to judge? Who are you to? We're no one to judge. But we're saying what God says. And because of that, all of heaven's behind what we're saying. And God wants us to know we have that authority. He wants us to know we have that kind of say in this world. That as we're salt and light, and as we are obedient to where God has placed us in in the body of Christ and outside the body of Christ, that whatever he leads, leads us to say and do that lines up with his word, we have all of heaven's resources behind us, and all of heaven is saying amen to those things. And so that gives us boldness, doesn't it? Gives me boldness. Hopefully it gives you the same boldness, and I'm not alone here. But we have boldness when we're standing on the firm foundation of God's word. And that's why in John chapter 20, as we read in verse 23, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. We have been given authority to tell people on behalf of God, which is a big deal, to speak on God's behalf, to be able to say on God's behalf, you are forgiven. Sometimes when I lead, us, lead someone in a prayer to receive Christ, I will tell them, if you prayed and you were sincere in praying that prayer, and I tell them there's nothing magical in these words. There's no mantra or magic words or God's not watching to see if you stumble over a syllable. Oh, you didn't quite get it right. I'm not going to save you. He's looking at your heart and he's looking at sincerity. And so what I say is if you prayed that prayer with me and you meant it in your heart, your sins are forgiven. I'm doing exactly what John chapter 20 verse 23 says. I'm saying they're forgiven. And But if they say, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I don't want to ask God's forgiveness. I want to go some, through some other door. Jesus says, I am the door. Or they say, I want to go through another way for forgiveness. There's many roads that lead to God. And I'll find forgiveness through a whole other world religion. I have the authority by the word of God to say, you won't be forgiven. And sometimes God puts us in situations where we need to be bold. And we need to tell people, no. You are going against God's word. You will not be forgiven. And it's the most loving thing we could ever tell them. That they are not forgiven of their sins. Because that's man's greatest problem, is a sin problem. When they announced Jesus' birth to the shepherds, those angels, he said he, he will save his people from their sins. That's man's greatest need, is that we're sinners and we need saving from our sins. Not to make, have a happy and fulfilled life, not supremely to, to, to be successful, or all these things that God gets to bring in his own way and in his own definition of prosperity. What God's aiming at in, in our lives is to make us holy to make us his sons and daughters and make us different in this world. And that can only happen by being forgiven. So that's the authority that Jesus is talking about. He gives it to his disciples and we're his disciples for us to know that wherever we go, we're bringing the kingdom of God with us. And when we're obedient to the Holy Spirit and what he's saying to us to do, the, 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 uh, the kingdom of God is manifested. Now, from a practical standpoint, what does this look like in our lives? How do we walk in this authority? Or what situations might we find ourselves where we are called upon God to, to engage in this? Well, the first thing we have to know, and I'm just going to give you two things. The first thing we need to know is that our lives are really an extension of the kingdom of God in many ways. We have to know that. Because in our lives, we could just kind of flounder through this life, going about our business and so forth, and not realizing that God has a higher plan for each one of our lives related to what he's doing in and through our lives. Ephesians chapter 2, verse, verse 10, tells us that he has uh, created us in Christ Jesus for good works, that he prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So that's important for us to know. We need to know that we're an extension of the kingdom of God. And, and that's possible because we bring God with us wherever 
we go. And I want to give you a couple examples of us bringing the kingdom of God into a situation. The first one is in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. Jesus said this. He said, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So when Jesus is performing a miracle or he's casting out demons, he said that when, in that moment, when he's engaged in that supernatural activity, the kingdom of God has come upon those that are around that situation. Well, he's told us that we can cast demons out, that he's given us that authority to, to, to do that, and other things that are supernatural in nature. And so when we're engaged in the supernatural, when we're being used by God, it's very uh, fair to say that we are bringing the kingdom of God upon whoever we're around at that moment. That the kingdom of God's being manifested at that moment through our lives because we're engaged in allowing God to do what only he can do. And, and so we need to know that. Also, he said in Luke chapter 10, verse 9, when he sends out his disciples to uh, engage in ministry, he says, Heal the sick there and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near you. So he sends out the disciples for this ministry. Send them out a handful of times. And he says, tell them. That's interesting, isn't it? Tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. We're told that John the Baptist said he's, that he was preaching the kingdom of God. Jesus said, i am come to preach the kingdom of God. Repent. Believe the gospel. That was Jesus' message during his public ministry. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. It is visiting you right now. And what's amazing to me is that God would actually entrust that to us knowing our, how sinful we are and how flawed we are, how imperfect we are and how we make mistakes. He's saying, I'm willing to attach the kingdom of God to you. It's, I mean, it's God's sense of humor. You have to acknowledge that. And then you go out and you preach the kingdom of God. And then because of that, God's going to have the kingdom of God come near unbelievers or believers as we're used by the Lord in their lives. So wherever we find ourselves, our places of service, uh, wherever we find ourselves in life, you know, at our, at our work, wherever we work, we are bringing the kingdom of God with us to work. It's bring, kingdom, you know, bring your kingdom of God to work day. You know, it's every day. I'm bringing the kingdom of God to my work or my school or my family. Whatever situation I'm in, God wants us to be ready to be used by him, to say the, same, to say the things that he would say, to do the things that he would do. To serve people. You know, whenever he went into a room, Jesus usually always addressed the greatest need in the room. That's a great, a great principle. And so we're in, we're in a room wherever we're at. Where, what does God want to do through my life right now? Who does he want me to talk to? Who does he want me to pray for? Who does he want me to preach the gospel to? Who does he want me to serve? That's, that's what the, the Christian life is about, is being a disciple. A disciple is saying the things that Jesus says, doing the things that Jesus does in response to what Jesus has done. That's a disciple. So that's what God's aiming at in our lives. But the second thing, and this is where Matthew 16 really comes into play, is because he wants us to be aggressive in bringing the kingdom of God to people. I told you that I would come back to Caesarea Philippi and why he brought the disciples there to say these things to the disciples. It wasn't by accident. It's an object lesson, and he's purposely going to the city of Caesarea Philippi for this purpose. He knew exactly what he was going to do that day when he set out. I'm going to Caesarea Philippi. I'm going to talk about my church. I'm going to talk about your authority in me. And so that's what he's stressing here, again, is authority. And so he's bringing them to this city. And guess what? There was a cave there. And that cave was a place where they worshiped these false gods. And it was called the gates of hell in the city. The gates of hell because they believed that these false gods would go through this cave and go into the, the, the deep parts of the earth into Hades for a season and then they would come back at certain parts of the year. So they would engage in sinful behavior to try to conjure them back up to come up through those, the little cave there, the gates of hell, and that they would be able to you know, engage their gods. And so Jesus knew that, obviously. He comes there and he brings up the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So he's, he's saying, I want you to know that you have this authority, but I'm going I'm to bring this whole object lesson to the place where you, it's symbolic of how much authority we have. Because I'm bringing it to a place that symbolizes 
the gates of hell. And we're going all the way to the symbolic gates of hell in this city for me to say that I'm building my church. You're not building it. I'm building my church. And the gates of hell, the real gates of hell, aren't going to prevail against my church. Now, when I was a new believer, I was very confused about the gates of hell. (laughs) I didn't know that gates in those days were defensive mechanisms for a city. And the gates were usually the strongest part of the the defensive outer uh, area of a city. The gates were very well fortified. They had walls, but they also had gates that were very strong. And you've seen these movies where they take the big, you know, massive, huge uh, beam and they ram it against the gates. I mean, that was an area of vulnerability. And so I always thought that the gates of hell were some kind of offensive mechanism from the enemy that are coming towards the church. And the church is on, on defense and the gates of hell are coming towards us and that Jesus is saying there is no possible way that these offensive things coming at you, these gates of hell, are going to win against coming, you know, against the church. The, the church will be able to defend adequately against it. I was totally backwards. <laughs> no, it's the opposite. It's the church is going forward. The church is on the offensive. The church is going and advancing. And Jesus gives this object lesson at the place that m- most people were afraid to go because it was so ungodly and it represented such a demonic place. And he goes right in the middle of that. And he says, I am building my church and the the real defensive mechanisms of hell, not this cave, the real defensive mechanisms of hell cannot withstand the offensive onslaught of my church. And why could that be possible? Because Jesus is building it. If we were building his church, we couldn't say that, could we? The gates of, you know, uh, you know, Delhi. (laughs) <laughs> could withstand the, the, the church if it was uh, the, the church of Pat. But it's the church of Jesus Christ. And he said he would build it. That gives us incredible confidence when we're thinking of our authority in Christ to be able to bring the kingdom of God wherever God has us and to be an influence for him. Because we can be afraid, where, where is the Lord going to send us? Where, where am I going to be? I don't know if I can be confident in how God's going to use me and, and what he's going to allow me to do for him. And God says, don't be afraid of that. I'm building the church. You're part of the church. If I lead you to go and take, take some land, so to speak, in a, like in a, a, a military um, uh, attack, spiritually speaking, you're going to take that land. Because you're the church and the defensive mechanisms of hell cannot withstand. And and he's getting to this incredible authority that we have. Related to sin, he's always going to provide a way of escape. Related to provision, he's always going to provide for our needs. Related to peace, he's going to give us the peace that surpasses all understanding as we cast our cares upon him. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His promises are yea and amen to us. He calls us more than conquerors, church. Think about it. He calls us more than conquerors. I'd be content to just be a conqueror. But he says we're more than conquerors. That is the church going forward. And some of us need to be reminded, myself included, that God's called us to walk in victory. He's called us to be victorious. When we're weak, he is strong. When we're needing grace, he pours out his grace abundantly. And there's no no exhausting his grace. So whatever you're facing right now, wherever he has you placed in the body of Christ, wherever you're being faithful in serving, he has all the grace and all the victory for you because you have authority in him. You have a legal standing with him regarding what your place is in the kingdom of God. And he's going to bring people our way all the time that need to enter into the kingdom of God. And if we're not tuned in because we're so overwhelmed and focused on our own things, and I'm not minimizing the pain and difficulty of the things we go through, but if we allow those things to crowd out our attention on the eternal things, the things that aren't seen, that will outlive the heavens and the earth, eternal consequences that are going on around us, then we're not going to bring the kingdom of God to the situation and we're going to lose out on the opportunity and the, and the stewardship that he's entrusted to us. Very important lesson for us. Heavy on my heart. Uh, this morning. So wherever the Holy Spirit takes this in each one of our hearts, that's up to him. But I know that he's encouraged me, at least one person in the church related to this, that I need to be what he's called me to be no matter where I am. And that, that, that kingdom of God is all around us. He's just waiting for us to obey him, waiting for us to approach that person at the gas pump. 
and say, God loves you. How can I pray for you? Waiting for us to talk to that person at our work that drives us absolutely crazy. <laughs> that just to start praying for them. And, and to, Lord, are you wanting me to, to affect them for the kingdom of God? Are you wanting to use me? Usually the person that fights against Christianity the most is the one that's closest. You know, as they've, as they've said, the, if you throw a rock in a group of dogs, a pack of dogs, the one that barks is the one that got hit. You know, that's kind of how it is. And we can't be discouraged about that. Or a, a health issue that we're facing. God usually brings opportunity to minister within the context of the kingdom of God in the middle of a crisis or a trial. If we're looking for it. If we're paying attention. All through Jesus' ministry, he's having needs come to him all around him in the context of incredible difficulty. And in Luke, when, he, when, he, when it says that he turned his face steadfastly towards Jerusalem, meaning that's his final uh, way to, to, to go to the cross. He, deals, he heals Bartimaeus. He, heals, he saves Zacchaeus. He does all these things. He, he had all these needs coming at him at the same time he's thinking about the cross, the cross, the cross. And these disciples, think about Paul going through all these things that he went through and all this difficulty. And in the context of all of that, he has so much ministry going on. We want to get all our trials out of the way and everything going smoothly so that we can focus on ministry. But it doesn't work that way, does it? So often, right in the middle of our trial, there's all this ministry. And so God wants us to be encouraged this morning. You have authority in me. Watch for the opportunities and how I want to use you in my kingdom in the midst of difficulty and trial and and distraction. And focus on me and he'll use us. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that we get to be a part of your kingdom. Thank you for the authority that we have. Thank you, Lord, that we are your ambassadors. And you've entrusted us with influence, true riches, as you say. We pray that you would help us to be paying attention to the needs that are around us. We know, Lord, that you have great compassion and great patience for us going through difficult things. And we thank you and we love you for that. And thank you, Lord, that you do give us opportunities right in the middle of those circumstances to be used by you and to have you manifest your kingdom in our midst around people. Thank you for the stewardship of being a part of what you're doing. Help us to not waste those opportunities, Lord, but speak to us and remind us and encourage us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at this time, we're going to enjoy communion as we do every first Sunday of the month. And so as we start to prepare our hearts for that, I want us to just think about his, his body that was broken for us. You know, he didn't have to have his body be pierced through and crown of thorns and scourged and spit upon and a bag put over his head and punched, not knowing who's going to hit him next, where the next punch is going to come from. He offered his body up for us so that we could enjoy the relationship that we get to enjoy and be able to have that authority that we have and be a part of the kingdom of God. But it only came from that sacrifice. So it's a good time for us to focus on that. The Holy Spirit can take our hearts so many different places as we focus on discerning his body. So let's do that now. Was the gift of transmission. It was a for our 
Let's lift the bread before him. Thank you, Jesus, that you paid that price for us. We can't even imagine what that was like, but we are thankful for it. And we pray, Lord, that your heart would be blessed by our remembering of it, Lord, and we pray that you would use our remembrance of it for your purposes for all eternity, Lord. We think of your wrists and your hands still being having the scars, Lord. You didn't have to do that. You could have had those uh, scars erased, but you didn't. And so we want to remember for all eternity what you did for us. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for making us into new people, Lord, those of us that know you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. We consider the cup, we think about his shed blood and the, the fact that we get to walk around being forgiven all the time and just be, to be whiter than snow and to be totally cleansed. It's only because of his shed blood for us so that we don't have anything in between us and him all the time or we're not running from him anymore. We are enjoying our relationship with him because he paid that price he, and, and he did it willingly, shed that blood for us. Let's lift the cup up now and let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing gift of eternal life. And thank you, Lord, that our sin debt was paid in full. We're thankful that you said it was finished and not to be continued or take it from here or any of these other things that would have sunk our hearts, Lord. But the fact that we get to read that you said it is finished comforts our hearts because there's nothing that we can add to your redemptive work. So we just want to worship you. We want to thank you. We, we pray, Lord, that you would use the reality that you died for our sins as a catalyst for us to live holy lives for you. Help us, Lord, to live like you lived. We pray that you would uh, live your life through our lives as we abide in you, that you would bear great fruit through our lives, Lord, to bring you glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. And let's stand together. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to the Lord, very important that you do that. You don't become a Christian by being a good person or believing in God or being religious. You become a Christian by having a spiritual birth. And that happens by you making a U-turn in the road of life, preparing your heart to receive the free gift of eternal life, and to trust completely in what Jesus did for you on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. Not your own religious works, not your good deeds, nothing, not trusting in any of those things, but totally, completely trusting in the sacrifice that God provided for you in Jesus. 
And when you do that in a moment in time, and you receive that, God comes in and he forgives you of your sins. He makes your dead spirit alive, and you're born spiritually. That's what being born again means. You're born once physically, then there has to come a point in time when you're born the second time, which is a spiritual birth. And if that hasn't happened yet, you have no confidence of heaven, just like we talked about. I can say that full authority because of what God's word says. Your sins are not forgiven if you haven't had a spiritual birth. So if that's you today, come forward. We'd love to pray with you. I'll be at the back door. We'd love to pray with you, answer your questions. Uh, We're not interested in building our kingdom here. If the Lord has you somewhere else at a church, great. But don't leave here without receiving Christ. Don't leave here without trusting in the Savior because he died for the opportunity to be able to know you personally and, and have you know him personally. So don't leave here without that. If you need prayer for anything, come forward. We'd love to pray with you. Obviously, I encourage you to pray for one another. Very excited about the the Labor Day picnic tomorrow. There's not very many opportunities. We get to have an extended period of time with each other. So it's at Northgate Park, 11 to 5. Uh, It's at the corner of Hoyt and uh, and Northgate. We're right there by the playground on the corner there by uh, Northgate uh, Road as, as it goes through right there. Uh, bring a side dish, bring a, um, a main dish, bring a um, lawn chair, blanket, whatever. We're going to have fun things for the kids, games and so forth. We're going to have food. All you got to do is say food, right? And the men are paying attention. Uh, we're going to have just, but more importantly, fellowship and just be able to spend time with one another. And if you come, think about meeting someone that you don't know instead of just being around people that you do know. Use it as an opportunity to get to know the rest of our family. What a privilege it is. I know every one of you almost. And trust me, you're missing out if you don't know everybody. So come, come to that and enjoy that. Looking forward to seeing you. I get two days in a row where I get to see you. That, I'm a blessed pastor by the virtue of that fact. So I get to enjoy myself two days in a row. God bless you this week. Go out and be who God's called you to be by his grace and by his power. Dave, will you close us?